idea we have um, my few words and then we will open magic tools for the integration of practice into lay life. Um, you know, sell their samadhi pills, show you how to use the <laughs> anti-ignorance blade of your Swiss army knife and this kind of thing. Um, I would like to be a little provocative and uh, suggest if your everyday life hasn't brought you to awakening so far, then it may not be the best idea to try to integrate your awakening practice into everyday life, but it might be better to do it the other way around. Hmm? To see how much of your everyday life you can fit into your awakening practice. Sometimes it seems that everyday life becomes this sacrosanct entity which has to remain unaltered by all Buddhist impact or all Buddhist practice or teaching and there somehow seems to be something wrong in this. So I would like to quietly ask you, um, ponder for a moment. And don't take this as just a rhetorical question. Ponder for a moment, how do you need to live to do justice what you have found out about yourself, about the workings of your mind, about the principles and the dynamics that underpin your experience? How do you need to live in your life to do justice to that? Just what you have found out about yourself last week. Consider for a moment. If you want to take responsibility, if you want to live at the edge of what you know, of what you have understood, what does that entail when you go home? You know, this is Buddhism. You, you don't get anything for free here. Yeah. You will understand things and in proportion to what you have understand you are called into responsibility you don't get insights that don't demand anything from you yeah. certain things are reversible not just path and fruit steps but also genuinely understanding a connection genuinely having an insight into a degree of um, implication responsibility any such understanding, any such insight comes at a price. In some way, it is irreversible. It asks you to stop pretending your innocence. You know, We're all culprits. We're all perpetrators. We all do things. We're not just harmless, harmlessly suffering. Yeah? As you know, attention is intentional. Yeah? Where we place our attention we are going is going to be the feeding ground for our experience. If our experience is not to our liking or brings pain and unsatisfactoriness, we need to check that feeding ground. We need to check our feeding habits. If you have found things that are both salubrious and useful in your life in the last week, and if you have found out patterns that are um, um, the opposite, then what does it take for you to translate that into your lives? Consider.
We are the translators of these teachings. You are the practitioners. People like you have carried this teaching on. There's a few famous monks and a few famous names and a few famous books and monasteries. But you know, without people like you, they would never have come to fame. Somebody had to feed them. Somebody had to pay the money for the printing of the books. Somebody had to ask the intelligent questions. Somebody had to make sure that they keep teaching, that they keep distributing their insights. They were called into relationship. It was people like you who made that possible. So I'd like you to ask, uh, ask you how, how are you going to translate that into your life? None of us can do that for you. You know, there's good value in translation. We have, a, we have a very fine translator here to our right who has translated in many ways texts <laughs> and books and teachings. And uh, that's necessary. But th there is more translation needed. One from Pali and Sanskrit and Chinese into, uh, in this case, English from a source text to a target language. But then we need to translate it into our lives. This is yet another translation, a cultural translation, a psychological translation, a translation to be done in the intimacy of our own minds, the intimacy of our own lives, the, the lives our lives touch. This is work, a work that entails probing, querying, investigating, doubting sometimes, learning, cross-checking, and a work that entails some courage. If we had just followed what our parents told us, we probably wouldn't, wouldn't have ended up here. I wouldn't have ended up here if I just did what mom and dad said. They had fairly clear plans for me, and uh, I let them down on the whole, you know, on the whole front. Yeah. No kids, no lawyer's career, no military service, no. So we have all deviated from expectations that were held against, uh, against our lives or against our own feelings how we should live. And that entailed probably some experimentation. Yes, do meditate. I don't know anything better than sitting down with yourself daily and practicing stillness and practicing taking a very deep look at what stops you from getting even stiller. Yeah. I spend half of my meditation time when I'm not on retreat basically doing samatha exercises. That's what I would recommend. If you have an hour to sit, spend at least half an hour making your mind still. Um, all our lives are busy. We're living in a mad time. It's a wonderful, privileged time, and it's mad at the same time. No other culture, as far as we can make out, has ever had such an immense bath in information and has thrown so much complexity at an individual mind. So we need to be realistic and learn to still skills in stilling the mind from already quite quiet to an even deeper stillness, from utterly frantic to a little less frantic. It doesn't matter at which stage you find your mind in. You need the skills to modulate from where you find it to quieter, 
deeper, stiller, more transparent. Why we meditate is simple. Chitta has three main functions. One of them is sensitivity. The second is the production of sankharas, volitional formation. And the third one is understanding. This is a non-abhidhamic, very simplistic uh, take on chitta. But these three functions have a relationship to each other. The more frantic the mind is and the more preoccupied with processing sensory experience, that's the first level, and responding to those sensory experiences with affective reactions and the handling and facilitating the internal responses to the sensory experience, that's the secondary level, the less the mind is intuitive and capable of understanding. So if we want to heighten the capacity to understand, we need to make this mind more transparent, more still. There is no two ways about it. Whatever we're going to call our practice, Tokshin or Shikantaza or you know, um, Burmese Satipatthana, you need to find ways to modulate the speed and the intensity of your cognitive and your affective processes. A fabulous tool is called Satipatthana. You have heard of it. Yeah? <laughs> so do, yes, do this. Do this. This is important. I know of nothing more important than go back. And truth be told, heroic efforts like a retreat are good. But in the long run, you will need continuity in your practice. A space where you go and sit down with yourself and try to be as honest with what is happening as possible. And hold your truth. Connect with, be, your, be a good cook to your own mind. Yeah? Connect with what's taking place in your heart and connect with the strength that comes from stilling and taking responsibility for learning the skills of making the mind brighter and investigating what stops it from being happy, what stops it from being free. That would be my second big suggestion. Whenever it hurts, whenever you meet unsatisfactoriness in its many shades, promise yourself that you investigate what it is, on what conditions this pain, this unsatisfactoriness, this frustration, this longing, this meaninglessness, or whatever it is, on what condition does this experience rest? Often we feel, in a sort of childlike way, when it hurts, the first thing we want is that it doesn't happen. And the second thing we want, not to be seen that it happens to us. So we have two problems. One is the actual unsatisfactoriness, And the second one is our childlike wish that it may just go away on its own accord. At least that nobody sees us not being perfect. And that's where spiritual practice really begins, when we acknowledge responsibility for our happenings. We don't need to blame ourselves. All the horror that happens to you, you you really deserve it. You You must have done some horrible things in the past so that you get all this horror thrown at you now. This is just bad Buddhism. You know, it's kind of new age determinism. This is, um, I have some unspeakable words for this, which I will spare you now. So, but <laughs> basically don't do it. 
But promise yourself that you turn into that which is unsatisfactory and that you investigate. That's the power. The Buddha's empowering message is that with appropriate and attuned relational awareness, we can find out what creates the suffering and what that suffering rests on. My third recommendation would be try to acknowledge your power where you live. We all have a lot more power than we admit. We have money, we have education, we have freedom, we have movement, we have connections. We're all in many ways powerful. We're consumers and we're citizens. We are uh, you know, friends, we have networks. Let us use these powers. Let us stop playing helpless. It's so easy to feel helpless. Media are particularly horrible at making us feel helpless. Getting news from everywhere in the world and having a radius of activity which is maybe 30 kilometers. Yeah? That's a recipe for helplessness. So we need, we need to do things. Some of this, what comes out of sitting still and trying to not do things, will be that we need to do things. We will need to commit. So we will need to risk. We will need to engage. The Buddha engaged, spent 45 years of his life teaching sometimes gifted people and sometimes not so gifted people, obstreperous people, difficult people. Yeah. He could have had a lot easier uh, life if he just sat there under the tree and uh, pondered a few things, you know, refined some of his understanding of dependent arising and and honed some of his the dynamics of factors leading to awakening and leading away from awakening. He could have refined all this, you know, taken it to fine art, but instead of that he put out the effort and actually taught and wondered. So I would suggest that you try to ask how can I engage wherever I live on the basis of compassion and my understanding of the teachings, how can I bring my energy, my intelligence, my means, my power, my presence, my, um, my voice to bear wherever I am, in my job, in my city, in my family. I don't ask you to be missionary. I, in fact, would recommend you try not to be missionary, particularly not with your own family. So don't go home and try to convince them of Buddhism or something, or even of meditation. Just smile. Let them ask. Practice Buddhist soft sell. You know. <laughs> don't try to convert. They will know how you are by the way you opened the door. Before you opened your mouth, they will already notice uh, what has changed or what hasn't changed. They will not listen to what you say. They will look how you are. So spare yourself the uh, conversion uh, ambitions and things like that, even if you feel uh, inspired. But living a life of commitment, both to the values you sense are deep in your heart and seek alignment with those values, and practice solidarity with other humans on the basis of compassion, whatever that may mean in your life and the place you live in. The Buddha is famous for 
a meditation practice where Viveka plays a role. You know, seclusion. First of the body and then of the mind and then if all goes well even of the substrata of uh, becoming called Upadi. So this is, he is famous for that. If you turn the page and you look what he also taught, you actually see that he taught quite a bit about relationship. He taught how communities should li live together, should look after each other. He encouraged kings to look after their subjects. He encouraged employers to look after their employees. He encouraged men and women how to look after each other. Uh, he encouraged junior monks to look after senior monks. And if you turn the page, you see that uh, in the same words, the senior monk is to look after the junior monk if the junior monk needs looking after. Yeah, So it's quite powerful how much relationship played a role in his vision of growth. He understood that all learning takes place in a context of relationship. We need others to learn. We need others to learn about ourselves. Yeah? So the core of his notion of communality is something called Kalyanamitata, friendship with the noble. The word metta and the word mita uh, have come from the same family. Yeah. So, noble friendship as the core of relationship, as the core of relationship with people with whom I learn, with whom I grow, people who share my aspirations. Kalyanamitas don't need to be teachers. It's great if your teachers are your Kalyanamitas, but actually, uh, they may not be teachers. They may be people whom you are married to, whom you uh, meet. This is a particular type of relationship in which you uh, seek a shared aspiration as the tenor on which you meet. This is something we need to cultivate. Sometimes it's not apparent because we are used to create relationships and bond on the basis of sympathy. That's good, but it's not the same like Kalyanamitta. Kalyanamitta may be somebody whom you don't spontaneously like, yeah. but it's somebody who, who you respect. The Buddha had a few things to say about such friendship. One of them was to give you two sets of seven. They are famous. Uh, the first set is uh, a noble friend is one who inspires my love. Very simple. The word is pia. A noble friend is somebody who inspires respect. A noble friend is somebody who inspires emulation. A noble friend is somebody who can listen. A noble friend is somebody who is a wise counselor, a skillful counselor. Notice the sequence here, yeah? Some people are quite happy to give counsel before they have listened. There's an important little point here. A noble friend is somebody who is capable of engaging in deep topics, in deep subjects. And a noble friend is somebody who looks out that we do not waste our time, our money, our energy. Now that's an interesting set, isn't it? 
inspires love, inspires respect, inspires emulation. Somebody capable of listening patiently, somebody able of cap of giving advice skillfully, uh, somebody able who is willing and capable of engaging in deep topics, and somebody who looks out for our well-being, for uh, looks, takes care of our resources, time, energy, money, such like. He does not lead us to into a path where we um, suffer loss. Now that's one set. Another set, maybe more psychological, says a noble friend is somebody who gives what is hard to give, who um, does what is hard to do, who bears what is hard to bear. Remember, friends are people who know you and still care. Yeah, that's an important one. Yeah, it's important to know this. So, a noble friend, to continue my list, is somebody who confides. He or she lets us know his or her secrets. A noble friend is somebody who holds our confidences, our secrets in confidentiality. A noble friend... <coughs> is somebody who does not leave one in, in misfortune, leave one behind in misfortune. A noble friend is somebody who does not despise one when in poverty or when in lack or, or when we don't have success. So if you now ask, where are all my noble friends? Yes, I would like many of them, please. <laughs> I suggest you turn it around and say, to whom can I be as such a noble friend? You know, are you willing to be such a noble friend? So ponder this and seek out noble friendship. Wherever you go, wherever you practice, it is not difficult to find human beings. We are a lot more alike than we are different. Yeah. So I wish you well and like to end here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.